IO9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 47 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, this is John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of Lightspeed and Fantasy Magazine, and of several anthologies, such as Armored, which is about soldiers going to war in mechs and power armor, and Under the Moons of Mars, which details the further adventures of John Carter of Mars. And I'm David Barr Kirtley. I'm the author of many short stories, including Save Me Please, about a young woman who goes searching for her ex-boyfriend, who disappeared after becoming obsessed with an online role-playing game. The story originally appeared in Realms of Fantasy magazine and was reprinted in Rich Horton's Fantasy the Best of the Year 2008. The story also appeared as episode 124 of the Escape Pod podcast. And our guest today is Neil Stevenson. He's the author of such books as Snow Crash, The Diamond Age, Cryptonomicon, The Baroque Cycle, and Anathem. He's currently collaborating with Greg Bear and others on an online fiction project called The Mongoliad, and his latest book, Reemdee, is about a money-making scam inside an online role-playing game that spins wildly out of control. Okay, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Neil Stevenson. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so first of all, just tell us about your new novel, Reemdi. What's it about? It's a thriller. I guess a techno-thriller is uh, how you would pigeonhole it if you had to pigeonhole it. It's about a... Um, the, the, the title refers to a virus that uh, gets loose in a fictional, extremely popular, massively multiplayer online role-playing game, and um, it kind of becomes the trigger for a, uh, a pretty complicated, multi-threaded plot line that involves a lot of international espionage and, and organized crime and, and skullduggery of, of various descriptions. All right, and so the phenomenon of gold farming features prominently in this book. Uh, what is gold farming, and what made you want to write a story about it? This is a thing that when I first became aware of it a few years ago, I simply couldn't believe anything that weird could be real. <laughs> but it, it really is it's an actual thing. Um, in most uh, of these online massively multiplayer games, um, there are various kinds of virtual property that are highly prized by the, the hardcore players. And typically, uh, they can be purchased uh, for gold pieces or sort of in-game pieces of imaginary gold. And so uh, if you've got sort of more money than time, you can actually purchase pretend gold pieces for, for real money from people, typically in China, but, but they could be anywhere, who just uh, make it their profession to sit there all day long playing these games uh, and acquiring as much gold and kind of valuable virtual property as they can uh, get their hands on and then selling it on, on the open market. And so what, what was it about that that made you uh, want to write about it? Just the, the sheer oddity uh, that, that such an industry could exist. And it's actually quite a large industry. It's billions of dollars a year. The notion of this uh so working the boundary line between a real currency and a virtual currency is inherently interesting to me. Uh, I've been writing books for a while now that have ideas in them about 
gold and currency and money and what those things are. And so the, this dovetailed pretty naturally uh, with that. And, and, and finally, it solved a, uh, a problem uh, that I needed to have solved, which was that I had been wanting for a while to, um, to write a story about a, a virus creator in uh, an Asian country, uh, just a kid who uh, kind of mischievously creates a, uh, a virus uh, that, that spreads all over the world and gets him into serious trouble with, with people from far away. Uh, and the uh, I needed a, a sort of mechanism that would render that plot device uh, kind of logical and um, in in the whole uh, virtual property economy I, I found that mechanism and so by by combining those two elements together I was able to create a uh, a basis for this plot that worked better than either one of those two things considered separately. Uh, so this book, uh, this book revolves around an imaginary online game called uh, Terrain. Uh, how did you dream up Terrain, and what are some of its uh, most distinctive features? Uh, like a lot of people, I played Dungeons and Dragons a little bit when I was in college, and um, it has to be explained, I guess, that when I was in college, it was pre-personal computer, pre-internet. So um, there's been this ongoing process ever since then of taking games of that type and transferring them into the virtual world and making them run on, on computers. And it started out with very simple text-based adventures uh, and has culminated in, uh, in well-known, uh, fully rendered sort of three-dimensional games like uh, World of Warcraft. Uh, and, and it's no doubt going to continue into the future. So I've been kind of following that um, development now for ever since I was in college, which is, you know, like 30 years or so. One of the ideas that I played with a long time ago when I got my first uh, Macintosh was trying to, to create uh, imaginary landforms, imaginary terrain. There's a fairly simple algorithm that you can use. Uh, you start with a flat triangle and you um, take the midpoint of each side of that triangle and you kind of randomly move it up or down a little bit. And then you recursively apply the same treatment to the four new little triangles that you've just created. And if you keep that up long enough, you can create a very rough kind of random looking fractal landform that kind of looks, you know, to the untutored eye, it kind of looks like a, a real landform. So I played around with that. Uh, a little bit, you know, when I got my first Mac a long time ago and, uh, and enjoyed sort of writing this program that would generate little imaginary islands and had thoughts of, of trying to build that into a, uh, a role-playing game since a lot of the drudgery uh, that goes into um, creating such a game has to do with, with building maps and, and trying to make realistic-looking uh, landforms. And, um, you know, eventually I, I had to go work on other things uh, that would actually, you know, reward, <laughs> reward my efforts a little more. But uh, it stuck with me. And so essentially what I've done in, um, in, in, in ReamD is a little bit of fictional wish fulfillment in that I've, I've taken some of those ideas and said, okay, well, what if uh, those had been carried forward 
in a really serious way with serious backing and serious uh, engineering talent behind it and turned into um, a really cool, fun-to-play game. Yeah, one of the fictional conceits here is that these guys have decided to embrace the practice of, of gold farming rather than discourage it because they know it's going to happen anyway and they see it actually as a desirable thing to have millions and millions of, of people in China um, playing this game all the time and, and creating this kind of uh, hard cash economy. Um, so rather than trying to suppress it, they've integrated it into the game at the most basic level. And that means that they're uh, interacting all the time with the, the real-world economy and they're settling transactions for for uh, for hard currency, and um, and so that's kind of a cool feature of the game. Uh, it's a fun thing to think about, but it gets them into trouble when uh, a criminal element starts using that feature of the game essentially as a money laundering uh, system. Uh, so, is Terrain at all your idea of like the ultimate video game, or is it just what it needs to be in order to tell the story? Well, I'm a little bit cautious about saying ultimate because as soon as anybody says ultimate anything uh, something better comes along mm -hmm. right so it's it's some kind of semi-informed speculation about what a next generation game might look like i think that there's probably some ideas in it that uh, could be implemented with realistic engineering resources and there's i'm sure some other elements of the thing that would be difficult, if not impossible, to actually do, either for engineering reasons or for kind of legal slash regulatory reasons. So, you know, I wanted it to be uh, plausible enough to work as a, a, a kind of element of this book's plot that people would accept and find interesting. Um, but I didn't want to be so fastidious about having it be uh, realistic and feasible uh, as to kind of take all the fun out of it. Uh, so you mentioned uh, you played D and D in college, uh, are, but are you are you currently still a gamer? And if so, uh, what are some of your favorite games? I, I play uh, Halo when I'm exercising. I I kind of had these two problems, right? One one was that um, I I played Halo or similar games, um, time would vanish, right? Suddenly it's three hours later, and I'm still sitting there. I haven't really accomplished anything other than killed a lot of aliens. So that's kind of a problem with video games. And another problem I was having that seemed unrelated is that technically you're supposed to get a certain amount of aerobic exercise every day. And the only way really to to get it is to um, to either go outside and run or else stay indoors and, and use a treadmill or an elliptical trainer or some other kind of apparatus like that, which is just so boring that I just can't stand it. The minutes crawl by like hours. So, now, well, if I combine those two things, <laughs> if I play Halo while I'm exercising, then the uh, the, the ability of, of Halo to make time disappear actually becomes a huge advantage. <laughs> so I set up a rig where I've got an Xbox in front of an elliptical trainer, um, and indeed it works really well. I can play the game while I'm running the, the trainer, and I'm not conscious of the excruciating dullness and tedium <laughs> of the exercise. Well, and you actually incorporated that idea into ReMD, uh... right? Right. We've got a we've got a one of the two kind of staff writers who creates the universe of the fictional game ReMD is a uh, 
uh, a well-known fantasy novelist who um, used to be morbidly obese, but to, to kind of save his life, started uh, doing his work while while operating a treadmill, and now he's got a you know sort of dangerously low body fat percentage. <laughs> he's known behind his back. People people call him Skeletor. So he there, there's two writers. That's one of them. The other one is is known as D squared and he's a Cambridge Don who uh, writes very elevated high fantasy stuff. And um, both of them, the, the one thing they have in common is that they're kind of disturbingly prolific. And so um, both of those writers are essentially parodies of myself. They're kind of like the angel and the devil that sit on my shoulders all day long trying to get my attention. But uh, so have you ever done any sort of game design or is that something you might do in the future? Um, I've been working on uh, on a, a game design project related to um, the, the the Mongoliad, which is a serialized uh, uh, novel revolving around the concept of Western uh, martial arts. You know, uh, we interviewed Greg Bear last last uh, winter, and he talked about the Mongoliad. I mean, what uh, sort of what is the current status of that project? Well, we're a few chapters away from being done with um, what we're calling season one, so. You know, the overall structure of the thing is a, a epic historical uh, quasi-fantasy novel that um, is set in the year 1241, and um, it's got a beginning uh, and an end. Uh, but uh, after that end, we, we're going to carry it forward and, and have kind of a season two and maybe a season three that'll uh, constitute, I guess, sequels to... Uh, to the, the first year's story. So um, we've been slowly pulling it together and you know, bringing the, uh, the different uh, plot lines uh, to their uh, conclusion. See, on, on Wikipedia, it says that, that the Mongoliad grew out of you feeling dissatisfied with the authenticity of some of the sword fighting scenes from your uh, Baroque cycle. I mean, could you say what, um, what, what sort of details you felt like were not uh, authentic enough? Uh, in the Baroque cycle, um, there were some uh, some sword fight sequences, typically uh, involving rapier and dagger, which is a uh, uh, an extraordinary, extraordinarily complicated and difficult kind of sword fighting because you're working. I mean, sword fighting is hard enough uh, just with one weapon. Uh, when you've got two weapons. Uh, and they're very different. One's a short range, one's a long range weapon. Uh, you're dealing with, a, you know, a really advanced kind of martial art. And so I was trying to get information on how people actually fought with these weapons. And um, I wasn't really able to find anything uh, that that felt right to me. I mean, I was writing these scenes and I felt like I was just kind of going through the motions and, and that there were obvious logical errors uh, or inconsistencies in the scenario that I was presenting. So in the course of trying to do better research on that and learn more about it, I began um, just trying to act out some of these movements with um, with a friend of mine, Paul, Pablos Holman. Uh, we just made kind of safe padded weapons and put on protective gear and started um, trying to uh, act out some of these sequences. <clears throat> and that, um, to make a long story short, led us into the world of what is called Western martial arts or historical European martial arts, which is a, a burgeoning um, 
uh, field uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. There's groups in a number of cities around the world where people are reconstructing the martial arts that were practiced by uh, medieval and Renaissance uh, Europeans by going over old treatises uh, and looking at old pictures in, in manuscripts and uh, and doing research on the weapons that were used, their weight, their balance, <clears throat> how they were handled, and, um, and sort of reconstituting uh, martial arts that once were uh, extremely sophisticated and highly developed and widely practiced, but uh, have been sort of dead for uh, for centuries in, in many cases. So um, it, it's out of that uh, background that uh, some of us uh, got the idea that um, it would make sense to kind of uh, start building stories and legends around um, around the, the, uh, the great practitioners of those arts in, in days of yore that would be sort of uh, analogous to or parallel to what we're all familiar with from the Asian martial arts world. Everyone's seen Kung Fu movies. Everyone's seen movies in which uh, Japanese martial arts are, are presented as being these almost supernaturally uh, highly developed uh, techniques. And, um, and that's fine. Uh, we, we don't begrudge them that, but um, we think that there's plenty of room for to do similar work with uh, with the Western styles of, of martial arts. I see. You know, you mentioned uh, in in Reem D there are these two fantasy writers, and there's this this absolutely hilarious scene about the use of apostrophes and fantasy names. Could you talk about sort of how you came up with that scene, how you wrote that scene? There's a tendency to to use typography as a way to suggest. Um, so exoticism or barbarity. And so any word that has apostrophes just sort of randomly stuck into it or, um, you know, letters jammed up against each other that don't make any sense, like a Q with no U after it, um, or, you know, a large number of consonants in a row, it is kind of used as a cheap shorthand in some cases uh, to suggest that you're dealing with some, you know, wild-ass alien being. Uh, or some kind of hyper exotic uh, fantasy culture, um, and so I think everyone who reads this kind of literature or who plays games sees that all over the place, and we all just kind of accept it as uh, as just you know a, a, a well known kind of I guess business practice, and as such, I, I thought it would be ripe for for some parody. Okay, so, uh, you know, there are a few points in the book where the characters suggest that fantasy tropes like elves, dwarves, and magic rings are popular because they're embedded in the collective unconscious. Uh, what do you actually think about that idea? Well, that's just me uh, coming out and saying things that I, I, at some level, believe, okay? So I, I do think that, um, as an example, people seem strongly drawn to uh, the idea of different humanoid races coexisting, uh, elves, dwarves, gnomes, what have you, and that some of these people, some of them are more inherently more advanced, uh, and others kind of live in the caves and in the woods, and, and they're, they're sort of benighted uh, creatures in some sense. And so when you see that kind of thing showing up repeatedly in 
in literature, and and you see that the, the readers are keen on, on accepting it. They, they just uh, they're immediately willing to embrace that uh, as the basis for a, a, a world. It makes you wonder why, you know, what is there about our culture that we find that kind of thing immediately plausible? And you know, one possibility is that it dates all the way back to the time when when Cro-Magnons were supplanting Neanderthals in, in Northern Europe. And, uh, and you know, they, they could easily have told stories about these primitive, sort of squat, powerful beings that lived in the caves and in the woods, um, and that had this kind of uneasy relationship with the more gracile, advanced um, uh, Cro-Magnons. Mm. Uh, so, so the title Reemdi is an intentional misspelling of Read Me. Uh, how did you decide to make that the title, and has there been any confusion with people assuming it's a typo and correcting it? Reemdi was kind of the first title, and then uh, when we started uh, just talking about uh, about the book um, to a, uh, a kind of wider assortment of people in the publishing industry, I immediately got tired of having to tediously explain over and over again that it was a deliberate misspelling. Uh, and so for a while we were thinking of just calling it Read Me uh, so we wouldn't have to keep explaining it. But after some consideration, you know, we decided maybe that was not distinctive enough and maybe a little too plaintive. Hmm. And so we went back to, to Reem D and um, I'm happy with that choice of title. And the one thing that we kind of missed is that uh, amongst ourselves, we had spent so long discussing these options over the phone and whatnot that we all knew how it was pronounced. And it didn't occur to us that um, lots of people would would be a little unclear on the correct pronunciation. So during the last couple of weeks, we've had to do a lot of explaining uh, of how to say the name. Um, but um, those are the breaks, I guess. Okay, so uh, you know, you recently published a piece called "Innovation Starvation" over at the World Policy Institute. Uh, what's that article about? It's about the the perception, uh, which turns out to be shared by a lot of people right now, that um, as a society we've kind of lost the ability to execute on the big stuff. So, in the first two thirds of the twentieth century, we went from not having airplanes to walking on the moon. And uh, we went from not having cars to cars everywhere and you know, many, many other examples of, of huge, uh, huge changes uh, in, our, in our landscape created by technology. And since then, um, it seems like you know, we've, we, you know, we've had the Internet, but that's about it. And so it's just a, so me asking the question of, of what's going on. And I don't claim to be able to really answer that question, but um, one thing I I can do is is write science fiction stories. And so, part of the idea that we're we're talking about now is you know, organizing a uh, an anthology of new science fiction stories that, in a sense, would be throwbacks to the techno optimistic uh, fiction of uh, the golden age, uh, and that would present some plausible innovations that a uh, young engineer or scientist who was just starting their career could look at and say, hmm, you know, if I start working on this thing today, then by the time I retire, maybe it'll actually exist. 
you know, I heard that the people who created Second Wife were inspired to do it after reading Snow Crash. Uh, do, do you know if that's true? And if, if any of your other works have uh, inspired developments in the real world? It was commonly said after Snow Crash was published that people were, you know, throwing it onto conference room tables in Sand Hill Road and saying, this is our business plan. I don't know if that's true, but I think it's a way of saying that a lot of people did kind of organize around it in a certain sense. Um, this is part of what I'm getting at with the uh, hieroglyph. Uh, I should have mentioned before that the kind of working title for the anthology that I mentioned is hieroglyph. And the name comes from the notion that certain uh, iconic uh, inventions in science fiction stories serve kind of like hieroglyphs and that there are these kind of symbols on the meaning of which everyone agrees the the Clark uh, communications satellite, the Heinlein rocket ship that lands on its fins, you know, the uh, Asimov robot and so on. And um, I think that what science fiction can do in cases like this is uh, provide not just uh, an idea for some specific technical innovation, but also supply a coherent picture of that innovation being integrated into a society and an economy. Um, a lot of times that's kind of the missing element that engineers or business people need in order to actually come up with a workable plan. So in the case of, of Snow Crash, I think uh, to the extent it affected things at all, I think it did so by presenting people with a sort of template for saying, okay, if we take you know, the following list of new technologies, you know, the internet, uh, three-dimensional uh, rendering capabilities on computers, and a couple of other things, and we put them together in the right way, then, you know, here's a kind of coherent picture of the, the what, what might emerge from that. That's what may have happened in the case of Snow Crash, if, you're, if you believe some people, and, uh, you know, who knows, maybe it could happen again in the case of... Uh, some things that we write about in the, the hieroglyph anthology. All right. Well, Neil Stevenson, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. It was a pleasure. Thanks, guys. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Neil Stevenson for joining us on the show. All right. And so for our discussion today, we're going to be talking about what makes a good computer role-playing game. And uh, we're joined by our second-ever guest geek, uh, my friend Keith Bergen. Uh, we went to high school together. Played a lot of Doom Deathmatch back in the day, programmed a lot of computer games. And so Keith is now, uh, was just the lead designer of 100 Rogues, uh, a very well-reviewed, well-received iPhone game. Uh, let's see, it was named by GamePro Magazine as one of the best iPhone games and also received favorable notice from Bioshock creator Ken Levine. So uh, Keith, welcome to the show. Hi there. And, uh, I mean, uh, a reason I really wanted to have Keith on the show is, you know, obviously he knows, uh, he knows as much about video games as anybody I know and is very opinionated. Well, you know, I mean, one of the uh, sort of most anticipated RPGs coming up is Diablo 3. And Keith posted a thing saying that uh, he knew it was going to suck and he just got his hands on the beta and, yep, it sucks. And so I'm just curious, Keith, uh, first of all, just how did you know it was going to suck? I think to say that it sucks is is a little bit of a not not quite accurate. I mean, I think that the a lot of elements about it definitely do suck. Like the writing sucks, and uh, the like the gameplay sucks, 
and uh, you know the, some of the art is really good. It, it looks really nice. Um, but uh, you know, I, I played the other Diablo games, and uh, I, I figured it would be pretty much more of the same, and it, and it really was. But uh, the the real thing is that I think it just wasn't it wasn't very focused. I think they are moving towards. And I think Diablo has always been kind of moving towards more of a Farmville type of operation where it's just, you know, a, it's not a really a game. It's more of a contract between the player and the software that you keep clicking and I will keep making the number go higher. Hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not that I like Farmville. I really like, like, games, like traditional games that are a contest that you can really lose, that you can really win, that you have to make difficult, interesting decisions in order to excel in. Uh, and you know, in Diablo, that's not the case. 99.9% of the time in Diablo, you are just making total no brainer, you know, just, just cl- if something comes on the screen and you click on it <laughs> until it goes away, hmm. that's, that's, you know, and the number goes higher. So, I mean, that, that's the thing that I think it, when looked at through the lens of game, I think that it really fails horribly, but there's a different lens there to look at it through. And I think that it, uh, it, it, I think that Blizzard needs to focus on that and just, you know, really take it all the way with this whole Farmville-type approach. I mean, you know, I, I, I enjoyed Diablo 2 quite a lot, but but one thing that always drove me crazy about that game and about Diablo, for that matter, was just how you had to carry around, like, 20 potions, and just any time your health falls below a certain level, you just drink 10 potions, you right. know, in, in a second. And I had heard that they were getting rid of the potions for Diablo 3, but then... They backed I, out of that. Yeah. They backed out, yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, yeah, you have, you have all these potions, you have all these items you have to pick up, and you have, you know, so much of Diablo is just getting all the trash items and bringing them up to the town to sell them. And it all comes down to just no-brainer, plus one, plus one, plus one, you know, type of behavior. And it's it's very compulsive. It's not, it's not you know, playing a game of chess is not compulsive at all. It's not exploiting compulsive behavior. It's a difficult challenge. Whereas Diablo and Farmville are, they're exploiting human compulsions to, to gather and to, you know, to, to show status and, and, and these kind of, I think that those kind of, those sort of things are kind of exploitative of human beings and are, of our tendencies. So, you know, I, I don't find that they are as enriching as like a real game. I mean, you, you mentioned the Fallout series. I mean, I think that's one of John's favorites. I remember he was saying he, had, he was playing Fallout 3 recently. I mean, what do you, what do you think of that, of those games? I mean, I, I think they're they're also nudging towards that direction. I, Fallout Three specifically, I don't, I really dislike Bethesda. I think that they always take the easy way out with when there's a design challenge. They always come up with some like really cheap band aid solution that solves nothing. And you know, uh, globalized leveling is a good example of that. Uh, but the VAT system, I think, is you know uh, an inherently less interesting uh, combat system than real time, and it's less interesting than a straight up turn based. It's just, it's basically like, you know, cinema porn, basically. It's like, you know, that's the whole reason it's there, is to look cinematic for the preview videos, not to make for better gameplay. Could you maybe, Keith, for the sort of general audience, explain what the VAT system is in globalized leveling? Uh, Well, globalized leveling is a little easier to explain. It's uh, basically, you know, most people are familiar with the idea in RPGs that when you kill a bunch of monsters, you level up and your health goes up and your, you know, your attack damage goes up and all these sort of things, statistics of yours go higher. In a system with globalized leveling, when you go higher, everyone else in the entire planet, mm-hmm. even from, from like a little, you know, a rat to <laughs> like a 
uh, Lich King or whatever, there's every single other thing also goes up with you. And uh, that was their, you know, brilliant solution to how do we make the game balanced so that, you know, uh, you don't go into some place and there's, like, monsters that are too difficult for you to fight or uh, monsters that are too easy. Now every battle will be a tough battle. But what happens is that you end up late game fighting bears that have 8,000 hit points and just having to mash and mash and mash and swing away at them. And it's just ridiculous. I mean, you know... uh, that's one really a good example of their less sort of lazy solutions. And then VATS is this weird combination of turn-based combat and real-time combat. Basically, you the, the game pauses, and you're allowed to select a pl- part of the enemy's body to shoot at, kind of like the original Fallout, if anyone's played that. And then it sort of it plays out in real-time, but you can't control yourself you're just watching a movie and it goes to all these different camera angles but it's happening in real time so monsters are shooting at you in real time and stuff and here's another great example of uh of bethesda's uh, bethesda i always say bethesda of bethesda's brilliant uh solutions is they're like well you can't control your character while this is all happening so you can be taking damage so oh i know let's just reduce the amount of damage you take during that sequence like how does that make any sense? Like, you know, it's to me that's one of those, you know, very uh, band-aid sort of solutions that they use. So yeah, that's what VATS is. Well, I mean, so I mean, we mentioned that you designed your own game, A Hundred Rogues. I mean, presum- presumably you designed it not to have these sort of things that bug you about so many modern games. I mean, what was what did you do differently than Diablo or Elder Scrolls Oblivion or Fallout Three or whatever? Well, the biggest difference is that you can lose in 100 Rogues. Um, if, you, if you're if you playing 100 Rogues and you're going through the dungeons, you're fighting monsters, and if you run out of health, you die. And then that's a game over. And then you have to start over. Uh, now, what we've done is, and, and this is something that comes from a, a genre of games called roguelikes, and each time you play, it's the world is randomly generated. So it's it's fun to play each time you play. It's not like, oh, man, I, I died, I have to start all the way at the beginning and do play this game again? Like, what does that say about our modern games, that like, that it's like this horrible thing that we have to play them again, <laughs> you know? So this is a game that's designed to be replayed, replayed, replayed. Uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's about player skill. Your character does progress and get better as you go throughout the game, but it's not about that. It's about increasing your skill as a player. And so, yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing is that, that it's a contest. It's, a, it's seeing how well you can do. It's like Tetris. Um, I'd say it has more in common with Tetris than it does with Diablo, even though thematically it's a lot like Diablo. Uh, and your game, you do have char- different character classes in it, right? You have sort of a basically fighter, wizard, thief. There's a crusader, yep. fairy wizard, and sort of skelly man, scoundrel. Yes. And I guess, I mean, one of these questions I have is that I've sort of started wondering about what is actually the value of character classes in, in RPGs. Uh, I, I, I see here that, you know, I think that Heretic 2 is a, a sadly neglected masterpiece. It kind of came out the same week as Half-Life and, and just got buried in it, uh, got buried by it. But I mean, I think that I, I, I read an interview with the, with the designers and they said something that I thought was really interesting. And, and they said that in the previous game that they had done, Hexen, you know, they, they had had a fighter, I think a cleric and a, a wizard, and each character had had four weapons. And they kind of realized after a while that each, each you know, they, they'd gone to all the trouble to program in 12 weapons, but then you only had a choice of four. And then in any particular circumstance, there was probably maybe one or two that made any sense to use. 
Um, and they said, well, for Heretic 2, let's just not have character classes. Let's have all 12 weapons available to all players. And then there's a lot more choices about how you approach any situation that you encounter. And that made, it makes a lot of sense to me. And, and it's particularly like, even like with Diablo 2, not only do you have different character classes, but you have to assign your skill points to particular skills so that there might be 50 skills programmed into the game, but you end up only ever using, say, two of them because those are the only ones that you have skill points in. And, mm -hmm. and so I just wonder, like, what, what really is the point of limiting the number of abilities the player can use so drastically in the name of these sort of arbitrary character classes? They offer different ways to play the same game. I mean, they offer, basically, it is a way to make uh, different games out of one game. You're, you're taking one system and you're saying, okay, can you defeat the system with these tools? Or can you defeat the system with these tools? Uh, and, and when you play with the different sets of tools, you have to play different ways and you have to make different decisions. And I also, I, I also think that, I mean, it almost sounds like you're saying that like more having given the player more choices is always better, which I don't think is true. I mean, you know, in 100 Rogues, you have like eight, eight skills per character class. I mean, would it be better if they had 32? Would it be better if they had 64? Well, you know, like, at a certain point, more choice is not better. I mean, there, there's, you know, like anything else, it's a balancing act. And you want to give players enough choice. But I think, ideally, you want a balance of some really, uh, just a, a good handful of, you know, very rich skills that are interesting. You know, what I try to do with the 100 Rogue skills, for example, is make just one skill fun to use over and over again because in each situation it functions a little bit differently. So the number of skills I wouldn't be so concerned with. I would be concerned with, you know, the quality of the skills and how deep they are. And uh, character classes, I think, you know, I, I think they're good in some games. They're, they're not good in other games. You have to design, design the game around that. You know, like often, I mean, I really like, say, in, in 100 Rogues, the, the ability to jump over guys that the, the scoundrel has and, you know, the ability to knock guys back. Uh, you know, that the Crusader has. Mm -hmm. And I just, I often find myself wishing I could play, you know, you know that I would, I would have to pick which of those skills to use in a particular situation, mm -hmm. kind of then being channeled into one approach or the other, just based yeah. on my character class. Right. Well, I would say that, if anything, that I would blame that on uh, I would, the skills themselves. I think that what you cited were two of the most interesting skills in in the game because they change your position and and they do some effects to monsters and stuff and they change the arrangement of monsters so i would say that you know probably the the reason that you have have that feeling in 100 rogues i don't know if you felt that way in other games too but if you've had that feeling in 100 rogues i would say just i needed to like make the skills more interesting than they were uh, i mean one of my sort of big things with video games is how i feel like there, there's been sort of less and less reward for more and more time invested as as the games have gone on. Like a lot of the games that I grew up playing, you could sort of wake up Saturday morning and start playing it, and by dinner time you would have finished it. Hmm. And you know now games, you know they're like sixty hours, a hundred hours of gameplay, as if that were a selling point. <laughs> and and to me it's not because I don't want to spend a hundred hours playing, you know, playing a game probably. When you start up a game, a modern video game, you know, you've got your load screens and then you've got these like cutscenes and then tutorials and then more cutscenes. And, you know, in the first 10 minutes, you'd be very lucky if you got to play at all. Hmm. In, the, in the first hour, you probably, 
you know, maybe they let you run down a linear corridor that you couldn't possibly make any mistakes on. But it's like, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't really consider that gameplay, you know? If the game, if I, if the game tells me press A to do X, you know, to do this <laughs> now, press A, and I press A, and it tells me how great I am, that's not <laughs> gameplay. You know, gameplay is where I'm allowed to make choices, and I find that in 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 new games, the amount of time that I'm actually making interesting decisions, you know, it's like one percent of the time on average, uh, and I think that's really really terrible if we're talking about video games as games. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I sort of wonder what what role the growing sophistication of the graphics plays in that, because I feel like as the graphics have gotten better and better, there's more and more need to show every single thing your character does. Mm -hmm. You know, like a lot of the RPGs I grew up playing, you know, you move around this map and your party is just represented by an icon. And if you want to move from one town to the other, it might take 10 seconds or something. Mm -hmm. And in a fully 3D game, you just you have to watch your characters run, you know, right, yeah. run around town, run from, run across the countryside. And you just, you just spend so much of your time just watching the run animation uh, and yeah. not, not doing anything. Yeah. When we make decisions in a game, like when there's, you know, two choices for us to make, our mind abstracts everything for us. You know, we think, oh, we don't think, oh, he's a skeleton warrior from the land of blah, 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 blah. We think, okay, he has 50 HP. I deal 20 damage per second or whatever, you know, I deal 20% damage a turn. So I have to kill him in three hits or else I'm going to die. You know what I mean? So, or I can move over to the left here. So people think in abstract terms when they're trying to make decisions because it's the most efficient thing to do. It's what our brain just naturally does. So it makes sense for games to be more representative and just give us the information that we need to play, which is what those older games would do. And, and part of the reason that they would do it was technological, uh, limits uh it's it's quite possible and in fact maybe even proven that origin would have made this huge elaborate bloated thing like they did with ultima 9 if they had been able to but uh what's interesting about the original the early days of video games is that those technological limitations actually just happened to be really useful in terms of uh making the game very efficient so yeah a lot of older games you'll find you pick them up and boom you're playing uh, you know, and whereas newer games, but I wouldn't blame it entirely on 3D because, for example, a game like Smash Brothers, uh, or you know, is is a good example of a game that you just pick it up and boom, you're playing, and it's all it's 3D graphics. So it's not really the 3D graphics that's the problem. It's more the mindset that games are supposed to be like movies, and that games are supposed to be extremely explicit. And uh, you know, it's I, I really just think it's, it's just a misunderstanding of how the brain works when we're playing games and how it is that it works is that we abstract everything. We bring everything down to what do I need to know in order to make a good decision? What, what do you think actually about, you know, I mean, your game hundred rogues is it's an animated game. I mean, there's sort of, you know, mm-hmm. a- animation cycles of the guys hitting each other and stuff. I mean, do you think that that serves gameplay? Yeah. Well, you know, there's definitely an expectation in terms of a commercial product that it's going to have animations. Uh, so, you know, I think it's something that has to be in there. I also think that 100 Rogues, and I really wanted this. Uh, we just didn't really have time. And I really wanted there to be a mode for experienced players to turn the animations off. And honestly, I, everyone I know that's played 100 Rogues a lot would have turned animations off because it means that you can play more 100 Rogues in, 
you know, it, right now the game takes, you know, about 45 minutes to, to beat. It's kind of a long, kind of a long haul, especially for a mobile game. And, um, you know, in that, if we were able to turn off animations, uh, you would be able to play three or four or five games in that time and have the exact same experience. It's just you're not watching the same animation loops over and over. Now, by the way, it, there's one really interesting distinction that I should make, which is that in a real-time game, animation has a gameplay meaning. So, like, in a fighting game or something, you know, what, how long it takes uh, Ryu to come down from his, uh, you know, dragon punch, that that's actually has a gameplay meaning. Like, the animation timings, you know, they have a direct relationship with the gameplay. You know, he did a really big attack. Now he's going to be stunned for like a second, and now I have a window to hit him. Uh, I mean, another feature of RPGs that I used to think was a, a feature, and I've come to see more and more as a bug, is, is that your characters are constantly growing stronger. And I used to think this was really clever because it meant that the game was never impossible. You know that you know you couldn't get stuck because you could always your character would just be growing more and more powerful, and then you could always you know press on. But the more I've thought about it, the more that actually kind of bothers me because I, I feel like the games that you don't actually have to get that good at them, uh, and I feel like that's the case with Diablo too, as we we were talking about that you just you know you just as you say you just hit monsters, <laughs> you hit anything that comes onto the screen, and you you know drink potions when your health falls below a certain level, and you go back to town when you're running out of potions, and that's essentially all you do for the whole game. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that there is a way that you could design a game. I mean, you can make a game that works that way. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I think that 100 Rogues uh, does that because you do get stronger in 100 Rogues a little bit as you go. And uh, now it has a countermeasure that I took from Roguelikes, which, uh, which is the food system, which is basically a, a turn counter that if you run out of food in your belly you die. And again, if you die, that's it. That's game over. So that puts a limit on how much grinding you can do. Now, in, in hindsight, I actually think that that's kind of uh, sort of one of those Band-Aid fixes. Uh, and so my next game uh, that I'm working on uh, doesn't have... It actually does away with the entire experience and leveling up system. And so I don't know. Maybe maybe that does mean that uh, I, I think that... Uh, the idea that your character is getting better. I mean, here's one weird thing about that whole your character getting better thing. The game should be getting harder as you go, yet we have this system that we all expect to be in every game now where your character, your tools are getting better. You're getting better guns. You're getting better swords. You're getting stronger. You're having more health. And it seems to me that that is exactly... The op that's working that's counterproductive if we want our games to get harder and it makes the job of balancing the game just so much more difficult because we have to predict where the character is going to be at this point in the game and like it just it makes everything a lot harder so and I think that's why we see solutions like Bethesda's uh, globalized leveling it's you know it's it's them not wanting to look at the fundamental problem of my character is getting better so I don't have to in in a hundred rows, I guess in sort of anything randomized like that, it seems like you have the issue that uh, how how do you guarantee that that any particular iteration of the game is winnable? I mean, I've often felt like there was no right I, I, there was no right move. You know, there was nothing I could have done to win. Well, uh, I mean, game. yeah. It, it, first of all, I don't think that it is 
uh, you should necessarily guarantee that every game is winnable. I mean, I, I think that that is a relatively new concept in the history of games. If you look at like solitaire or you know or any any traditional game, there's never ever been uh, any guarantee that you will be able to win. You know, I mean, but I do think that fairness is important. And uh, and I, and and from from what I've gathered, it, I do think that we did a pretty good job of eliminating those unfair situations in 100 Rogues that you just could not avoid. Uh, they may still come up once in a while, but I think they're pretty fringe. I don't. I do think that a system first and foremost has to be natural and fair. And uh, so I, I I I guess fairness means. That a player should be able to win every single uh, should be able to win every single game, although I don't know. Uh, I think uh, it's it's arguable that uh, sometimes a natural, uh, consistent system will uh, give you something that just isn't winnable. Uh, I'm not sure. It's an interesting question. I mean, other than your game, I mean, what, are there other games? maybe other sort of iPhone independent sort of games that have come out that have, you feel are sort of like on the right track toward the, the sort of ideal RPG experience? Well, there's another game that's like our game that's uh, called uh, uh, Mystery Dungeon Sheer and the Wanderer, uh, which people can get for the DS. It was originally a Super Famicom game, and it just got re-released in about 2005 for the DS, and I really recommend that. Um, RPGs, you know, I mean, it's weird. I... I almost think that, you know, like I said, that my whole thing about story, you know, what are the things that define an RPG? An RPG is defined by, well, it's a story-based thing, and it's a thing where your character gets better. And, I mean, you know, I've just told you that I think both of those things are bad for games. So, I mean, I, you know, I think that with that said, 100 Rogues has some RPG elements, like thematically, and uh, but I don't I don't know that it it doesn't, it's not the traditional RPG. So I think that the best way to approach uh, an R- the RPG thing is to do something really different and weird and interesting. So I can definitely give you examples of new games that are very interesting, but uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if, uh, if our traditional RPG can be really saved in the way that would satisfy me because of the problems, the inherent problems. And if you get rid of those things, like my new game, for example, it comes out of, uh, roguelikes, which come themselves come out of RPGs, but mine is now so removed that it's it, no one is going to call my next game Oro a uh, an RPG because it doesn't have experience points. It's really not story based. It's really mechanics based. There is a story, but it's it, it's just you know there's not like dialogue and all the things that you would expect to be in a uh, in a in a game. So I, I think that uh, I I would my answer would be no that I I don't know any. Uh, any RPGs that are really solving these problems because I think they're fundamental problems of the genre. Well, yeah, I mean, do you maybe want to talk about Oro a little bit? I mean, how, if there's no experience, I think either you said there's no um, inventory, like how exactly, like what is there? How does it work? Well, most monsters just have one hit point. Some maybe have two. You've got 10 hit points and you deal one damage with your attack. So, that, and that never changes throughout the game. So what does change is you also get tactical abilities, abilities that allow you to, you know, change places with a monster or, you know, uh, attack a line of monsters or set up a trap or, you know, all these little tactical abilities. And so you start out with just one of those and you fight monsters that just have one. 
And then as the game progresses, it gets harder because there are more monsters that have more different abilities that you have to keep track of. And you get more abilities, too. So you do kind of get more powerful, but in a way that's totally tactical. And if you don't use it right, you're not more powerful at all. So the game becomes more difficult as the game provides you with more and more difficult uh, you know, uh, d decisions to make. You know, like on, on the first level, you're maybe just fighting rats and you have like one simple ability and it's very, it's pretty, you know, uh, self-explanatory. And then on the third or fourth level, you, now you're seeing not only more monsters, so you have to use the abilities that you have more efficiently, but each of those monsters has, like maybe there's two or three different types of monsters, each with their own ability. And you have to worry about that. Oh, he's going to shoot me with this weird thing and he's going to swap places with me. Uh, and he's going to do this, and I have to like plan for all these different things, so it gets more and more complex um, tactically. Uh, you, your character never gets more powerful. You don't equip items. You don't uh, any of those RPG things. Uh, it's all about the game becoming more and more tactically interesting as you go. I mean, this you know, Hundred Rogues was your first game. I mean, what what do you kind of think about the the iPhone indie game scene as a uh a way into making games? I mean, is it something you would recommend to other people? Do you have any sort of cautionary tales that you would uh, let people know who are thinking about getting into that? Yeah, sure. Well, it's 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 certainly not perfect. It's far from, you know, ideal. But uh, I absolutely would recommend to anyone who is really passionate about games and specifically game design to get involved in making, you know, iPhone games, Android games, web games, uh, Xbox Live Arcade games, all of these platforms are great for, you know, game developers. And I would, I would at the same time really not recommend that they get involved in, you know, like try to get involved in mainstream, you know, huge AAA uh, uh, studios because uh, it's just, there's just really no room for, for like innovative ideas in, in these, these things are, they're just so huge. So much money has to be poured into them that, uh, you know, if you go into something like that, hoping to make a really cool, visionary, interesting game, you're just going to come out really, uh, disappointed. So I, yeah, I love, I love all these new platforms for, for people to be able to make games. And, uh, I think it's only a positive thing. And so I'm very excited to see, where the future of it goes. I think it has a lot of improvement to be made. For example, uh, you know, the, the app stores where you're able to find software tend to be very top heavy and uh, maybe the reviews could be a little more useful somehow. And, you know, there's definitely some problems with it, but uh, uh, as a whole, it's, it's, it's the most positive thing to happen to digital games, you know, since probably their inception. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, uh, Alrighty. Keith, thanks for joining us. No problem. Anytime. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. See, uh, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to give us a rating on iTunes. We're up to 80 ratings, uh, which is actually a pretty big jump from, from last time. So that's pretty cool. You know, we're hoping to get to 100 ratings by the end of the uh, end of the year. So if there, we just need 20, 20 more people. If there are 20, I have to believe that there are 20 people out there who uh, are enjoying the show enough to head over to iTunes and type in Geek's Guide to the Galaxy in the search bar and click on the little five-star or four-star, you know, click-to-rate button. Uh, five-star or four-star are your only options, <laughs> just so you know. Yeah, yeah. 
just from a technical standpoint, it won't even let you rate it any lower than that. So, you know, don't even try. Um, and of course, you know, you could also, uh, if you want to post a comment in response to anything, uh, anything you heard today, I have a feeling some people might want to respond to some of the things Keith said, <laughs> just a hunch I got, but, uh, you know, you can uh, go to our website at geeksguideshow.com and, uh, look up, uh, episode 47, uh, with our Neil Stevenson interview and click on the link there. It'll take you over to io9 and you can post a comment there. All right. So that was our episode. Thanks for listening. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.